The Gist is brought to you by Credit Karma. Don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you get your credit report right now absolutely free. Just visit creditkarma.com save to get started. There are no strings attached and no credit card required at creditkarma.com save. And by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 29th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You ever get in a, a weird headspace? You just feel boxed in? And that, my friends, is a wonderful pun if this were in a podcast. And you could see how I'm recording this. I have my head inside a padded box because I'm in a hotel in Chicago having just recorded Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And we thought it might sound better if I pad up this box and stick my head in there and welcome you if you have just listened to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and are like, what is this show the gist? And if it's as third as funny as Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's probably because the three funny panelists other than Mike Pesca aren't there. So the math kind of holds up. Uh, So I came back after Wait, Wait, Watch the debate, watch the Republican debate. It's kind of good to watch it on tape delay because, you know, the first thing you want to know is that no one immolated themselves, no one stripped to the waist and, you know, smeared themselves in marmalade, right? There's just a little bit of tension. Once you find out that didn't happen, and once you find out that the Trump event went, you know, exactly according to Trump's totally nutty running for president 2016 script, you get to really weigh in on the content of the debate. And uh, two things that struck me are that, Chris Christie has these common sense ideas if the facts of the world were what he thought they were. He's just constantly inflating the terror threat. And in fact, in the spiel, we're going to touch on that again. But the other thing that happened is I came away with this impression of Ted Cruz that he's unusual in terms of humor. Because it is often the case that quality humor depends on or at least benefits from a deadpan delivery. So some of the best jokes are you don't even know the person is joking at first. And then when the punchline is delivered, you're like, oh, he was joking. And there is a relief and a release, and that makes the joke better. But with Ted Cruz, like when he says stuff like this. Let me say, I'm a maniac. And everyone on this stage is stupid, fat, and ugly. And Ben, you're a terrible surgeon. (laughs) When he says stuff like that, Instead of saying, ah, he was laughing, you say, oh, he was laughing. Thank God, because he's deadly serious with ideas that are just as wacky as that usually. But wait a minute. This time that he was joking, there were no policy implications that could really run this country into the ground. Whereas with other cases, he has the exact same tone and level of seriousness. And he's talking about, I don't know, auditing the IRS or defunding Planned Parenthood or bombing Syria back to the Stone Age. Oh, wait, they're already in the Stone Age. So those are a couple of debate takeaways. In the show today, it's going to be a best of show because I have a lot of travel to do. Plus, I've got to watch that undercard debate, such as my commitment to you, the listeners of The Gist. So in the spiel, I will talk about the time New York Police Commissioner Benjamin Bratton looked at a, a threat from possible Islamists and said, yeah, just not good enough. You're not really convincing me. Bad capitalization. But first, an interview with the real reporters who broke the story of church abuse in Boston that the movie Spotlight was based on. Get some help with your New Year's resolutions via Credit Karma. Credit Karma 
is a new service that really is a service. So you know all those services or jingles promising it'll give you your credit score? Yeah, they will give you your credit score. The other ones, here are two things to know. One, you can get your credit score for free from the government. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. Two, the ones with the funniest commercials, you know, they spent a lot on an advertising firm to create these commercials and dress a guy in a pirate's hat. I'm not going to use the word scam, but they're not what you're going to want to be using because to get your score, you give them your credit card and then they sign you up and you have to go through the onerous process of canceling. You don't want that. You want a free score with no strings attached. Now, the government sites give you your score, but you can only access them like once a year. Credit Karma really is the ne plus ultra of this service because what you could do is get your credit score and they you don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to give them your credit card. You just visit creditkarma.com slash save right now to get a free report. Now, I can't give you a 10% off code like I do with using the words the gist because there's no percent off. It's just checking out your free score. 45 million members are already using Credit Karma. It's really easy to use. I'm going to give you the site again, creditkarma.com slash save. This is the way to check on and also to monitor your credit. You have unlimited access to this and it costs you nothing. What's to lose? creditkarma.com slash save. The movie Spotlight has garnered multiple Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Writing, Best Acting in a couple of instances, and Best Directing. Well, a few months ago, I talked to three of the real reporters upon whom the movie was based. Two of these reporters, Sasha Pfeiffer, who is played by Rachel McAdams, and Mike Resendez, who is played by Mark Ruffalo, were nominated for Academy Awards. And I guess Walter Robbie Robinson, he, he was played by Michael Keaton. He didn't get nominated because, I don't know, maybe they figure Keaton already won for Birdman. Let's spread this one around. It was an excellent interview. You could see the professionalism of these reporters. Reporters, as we talked about the long, long task of reporting this terrible story of abuse in the Catholic Church. Let's listen back on that. In 2002, reporters for the Boston Globe broke the story of the pervasive sexual abuse scandal that was countenanced and covered up by the Catholic Church. I will read from the Pulitzer Prize citation. Awarded to the Boston Globe for its courageous, comprehensive coverage of sexual abuse by priests, an effort that pierced secrecy, stirred local, national, and international reaction, and produced changes in the Roman Catholic Church. So that citations from 2003, of course. The ripples from those stories and that scandal continue today. The scandal's been called the worst crisis in the Catholic Church since Reformation. Well, the Globe team that broke the story was named the Spotlight Team, and that's the name of a new movie telling the story of the story of the scandal. Three of the journalists who are in the movie are here with me today. We, why don't we go around so we could do voice recognition, and then you say who you are and who plays you in the movie. So, Sasha, you could go first. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer, and I'm played in the movie by Rachel McAdams. The numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. I'm Mike Resendiz of the Globe Spotlight team, and I'm played by Mark Ruffalo. I know there's things you cannot tell me, but I also know there's a story here, and I think it's an important story. I'm Walter Robinson. I'm played in the film by Michael Keaton. I prefer to think of myself as player coach, but yes. What did you want 
from this movie? Because the reporting's out there in the paper. Then you did a book called Betrayal, right? That's about right. it. So you said what you wanted to say. This is for a different audience. So what do you want the movie to say? We wanted the movie to get the story right. Mm-hmm. And it did. It did. Timelines are accurate. Timelines yes. are accurate. And most especially important to us, how we did the reporting. We, we were looking for two things here. One, this was this was pitched to us as a movie that would sing the praises of investigative journalism. And we were interested in that, particularly because it's a time when investigative journalism is not being funded particularly well. And also, uh, we were told it would be a movie about clergy sex abuse, which it is. And so I think we got what we were promised and what we wanted, which was those two things. But I'll, I'll, I'll answer that a little differently. In a way, we wanted nothing. We weren't looking for a movie to be made. We were just approached. I think all of us had skepticism that this would even make an interesting movie that would be palatable to watchers. Who wants to see a movie about priests who abuse children? It's not that. It's a movie about reporting and investigative journalism. And mostly, for me at least, I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want it to be Hollywoodized in a way that made us cringe, and instead they've made this lovely movie really true to reality. In the movie, it's disclosed, I, I assume this is accurate, you're all lapsed Catholics. So when you're covering an institution like the Globe, you're also seasoned journalists, you are not kids, you know that there's a lot of money there, there's probably a lot of corruption there, but is there an extra hurdle? Either that family members still very much believe in the church, or that you don't want it to be true if it's the church. Is there any 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 hurdle there because it is the church? No. You think no. not? Uh, no. In fact, there's the absence of a hurdle in that we all sort of got the church. We knew the church. We grew up in the church. We, we understood the culture. We didn't, and we were shocked when we found out how extensive this was. I mean, all we wanted to do was to get the story and get the story out. Robbie's right. We understood the deference that the church was given for so many decades in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is why people didn't question authority. And we understood that, you know, having having grown up Catholic. But was there a glee in being able to take it down? The time is nigh? Or was it, I'm sorry, we have to do this, but we have to do it? No, no there, was never, there was never any glee at all. In fact, it was uh, sort of with a sense of growing dread and horror that we approached the story and investigated it. Uh, there was no glee at all, far from it, almost almost the opposite. And no, never a high five. Yeah. Sub- subject matter was too grim, too serious. Well, one thing that the movie does in one of the first scenes, we see kids, we see little kids. I mean, we don't even hear from them, but I just think it's really important to orient us about these are who the victims are. And I wonder if at times as you're reporting the stories, did you get back to that? talking about kids, because now they're adults, but let's talk about a seven-year-old. We talked a lot about how do you write a story that isn't gratuitous Mm -hmm. and that isn't too difficult to read because of how horrible what happened was, but that doesn't sanitize it too much. If you just say a child was molested, that sounds so generic. And in the movie that one of the guys you talked to says that, and you said the words, the phrases, I mean, your character in the movie says that, but is does that right. echo a real conversation? I mean, conversation? there's a whole range of things yeah. of what molest can right. mean, a yeah. whole range of horrifying things. And we really tried to be sensitive, but also get across how this can change your life forever and stop you in time because of something traumatic that happened when you were an adolescent. I was surprised at how many times I had to remind people that sexually molesting a child is not a mistake. You know, these are crimes we're talking about. This is illegal. This is rape. And so I think the terminology is really important. And when we did interviews, it, it was always trying to keep in mind... Uh, I remember one specific, an 87-year-old man called from Biddeford, Maine, to tell me the first person he'd ever told 
that when he was 12 years old in 1926, he was abused by a priest. And to try to remember, you're not talking to an 87-year-old man per se. You're talking to someone who was 12 once when his life was essentially ruined. Right. And there's a scene in the movie where your character is talking to the guy who was saying I was a 12-year-old kid at the time right. and my, the ice cream ran down my arm. That's right. Real detail? Real detail. Absolute real detail. Almost that whole interview is verbatim. And I got to tell you, for me, there's a line in that scene that is particularly chilling. And it's the line where the lawyer, Mitchell Garabedian, says, this is one of the lucky ones. And Mark Ruffalo says, what do you mean? And the lawyer says, he's still alive. And the reason it's so chilling is because that particular individual, Patrick McSorley, is no longer alive. Well, there was also a shot. It wasn't gratuitous, but you couldn't help but notice it of the track marks on his arms. Yes. Yeah. Patrick had a drug problem. When we were reporting this story, I had gone to a retirement home to meet an older priest who someone had advised that I talked to. And we were talking about Father John Gagan, who they called Jack. And I'll never forget this priest saying to me, we all knew that Jack fooled around with little boys. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, what kind of euphemism is fooled around with little boys? I mean, that, uh, kids got raped. You know, another priest once told me we thought we were keeping our celibacy vow if we fooled around with little boys and not little girls. So there was this very twisted, warped thought process going on. Did everyone read Eileen McNamara's column this weekend? It, it's a column. Uh, well, apparently this priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years, and the attorney for the victims, Mr. Uh, Garabedian. Thanks, Eileen. Mr. Garabedian says Cardinal Law found out about it 15 years ago and did nothing. Yeah, I think that attorney's a bit of a crank, and the church dismissed the claim. Whether Mr. Garabedian is a crank or not, he says he has documents that prove the Cardinal knew. Uh, as I understand it, those documents are under seal. Okay, but the fact remains a Boston priest abused 80 kids. We have a lawyer who says he can prove law knew about it, and we've written all of uh, two stories in the last six months. This strikes me as an essential story to a local paper. I think at the very least, uh, we have to go through those documents. How would you like to do that? We would go to court. You want to sue the church? For years, media outlets of all kinds across the country wrote about priests who abuse children. Our focus yes. was not so much about priests who abuse children, it's about church officials who cover up for priests who abuse children. It was to look at the system, and that was differentiated what we did. You Institutions. know, we, we, I yeah. say that uh, the Globe by no means discovered clergy sex abuse. There were scandals all over the country, uh, Louisiana, Texas, and in our own uh, neighboring diocese of Fall River. What we did is we exposed the cover-up, and that had never been done by anyone before. That was our contribution. We didn't feel a deference that prevented us from doing this, although we understood the deference the church was afforded. But there were hurdles, which is the church is not a public organization. You can't ask for its tax returns, look up its SEC filings. You can't send a Freedom of Information Act request. So it was a real reporting challenge. What do you do when an organization doesn't have any legal right to give you anything, has no interest in giving you anything? And so there were hurdles in that sense, reporting and, hurdles. And, and the other one, quite frankly, is it's unimaginable what was going on. And and. All, almost all of the cases that had become public were sort of one-offs. You know, one, a priest in one diocese, a priest in another diocese, and the archbishop or the cardinal all, in each of them always said, this is a single aberrant priest and we've taken care of it. Nobody imagined that there were hundreds, actually literally thousands, I think it's over 8,000 American priests, uh, the, the bishops themselves acknowledged, now have been credibly accused over the years. So... The idea that this could be going on particularly, and we all learned a lesson from this, every paper, in an, such an iconic institution 
the most iconic institution in, in any community. That this could have been going on. It gave us a, a new perspective. Wait a minute. Even, even institutions that we trust and admire so much are run by fallible human beings, and we have to hold them as accountable as we do public agencies. And there was an inadvertent benefit to us not having done this story until 2002, which is that was the very early ages of stories going online. And if we had written that story years earlier, a small radius of people in the Boston area would have seen it. People all across the country and the world saw it. And that meant tip calls were coming in nationwide that we benefited from the, 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 the broad reach the story had because of the web. Now I want to ask you a couple questions about translating reality to movie screens. I'm going to assume not as many conversations took place in dramatic scenes as they were depicted in the movies, like right outside of the printing press or I got an idea, let's walk through the newsroom and let me share the idea. So, you know, things have to move a little more in movies. Well, it is a dramatization. Yes. But but to give you one example, there's a, a wonderful scene where Marty Baron basically gives us a pep talk after mm-hmm. we're feeling a little chagrined and a little guilty for not breaking the story earlier. And that pep talk actually comes from an email that Marty sent to Robbie and to Ben Bradley Jr. So that was sort of the brilliance of Josh Singer and Tom McCarthy in writing the script. They took written documents and they dramatized yes. what they found. I would also assume that a lot of your conversations, although there are a lot of phone conversations, perhaps more in-person conversations happen. If you got Stanley Tucci as an actor, you might as well get your money's worth. <laughs> well, right? sure. I mean, a lot of newspaper life involves sitting at a desk yes, on the telephone. Yes. That's not going to sustain a two-hour movie. I mean, the, the golf course scene... The golf course scene yeah. uh, never actually <laughs> happened, although I... I am comfortable on a that golf course. You were golfing with a guy who was a lawyer who knew. Right. And yeah. that and yeah. that was, you know, that person was a composite character. And there was, I think, uh, probably phone calls. Yes. But it's a scene that might have happened. Okay. And I mean, you know, <laughs> they, sh- they show us uh, creating this spreadsheet of essentially bad priests where we're tracking their yes. movements over time. Yes. And they made it look riveting what we were doing. That was a tedious three weeks of work that they turned into an exciting few minutes of movie. I could tell. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I could tell. One of the things that uh, Josh and Tom, the screenwriters, had going for them is that there were four of us so that uh, they can they could cut quickly from what I was doing to what Sasha was doing to what Robbie was doing because we were all doing different things right. and then cut to what was happening in Marty Barron's office and then cut to what's happening among among uh, Catholics in Boston. So it created a sense of momentum that would probably would not have been possible if there were only one reporter working the story. Do you think your style, so in the movie, you know, Mark Ruffalo plays his character one way and Rachel McAdams another, there are actorly choices, but I got the sense that you, Mike, are extremely dogged and won't take no for an answer. And neither will you, Sasha, but you do it in different ways. Like maybe you coax the answer out where you as my, you know, browbeat the answer out of someone. (laughs) Is that about right with real life? Well, it's been said uh, somewhat to my chagrin that uh, I rear up easily. Yeah. And uh, I was not... I've said it. (laughs) (laughs) And I got to tell you, I was not uh, eager to have Mark Ruffalo explore this side of my character. If we don't rush to print, somebody else is going to find these letters and butcher the story. Joe Quimby from the Herald was at the freaking courthouse. Mike. What? Why, Why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. Then let's take it up to Ben, let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie! It's time! Mark Ruffalo came to my house, and uh, I'd never met him before. He walked in, he sat down, he opened a notebook, he turned on his iPhone, and he started asking me not only how I do my job, but why I do my job. And I thought, wow, this is this is really intrusive. Yeah. And then I thought, well, how many times have I done this to people? And the answer is probably hundreds. 
And so I thought, uh, this is justice, and settled into it. And when the director and screenwriter came back and forth to Boston for years to interview us, the questions began to get really personal. Like, how did this affect your marriage? And that's when I started to feel uneasy. Like, what what's yeah. this going to be? What, how are we going to be portrayed? There was stuff about your marriage in the movie. Were you comfortable with that? Uh, no, I wasn't comfortable, to be quite honest. Uh, but uh, uh, I think they captured uh, the substance of... Uh, what we did, and there, there wasn't too much of it. So, yeah. but I, just to be honest, uh, I guess I and it's, this will not be any surprise to either uh, Josh or Tom or Mark, but uh, I was uncomfortable with it. How so? How often did you watch them film? A oh, lot. Quite a a, quite you a were bit. on you were on set on as advisors set at the Globe and yeah. in Toronto, where they re, where they built a replica Globe newsroom. They yeah. they basically welcomed us as much as we wanted to be there. And they used us. I mean, they would ask our advice. Uh, the actors would ask us to read lines. Yeah. Uh, Josh and Tom would come over and say, hey, would it really, really, really happen this way? So they, they made full use of us, and, and we were happy to be a part of it. What's and, an example of something that showed up in the movie where he said, not like this, like that? They were basic journalism questions. You know, there was one scene where, for instance, Michael should have had uh, a notebook in his hand as he was asking questions. And I said to Tom McCarthy, I said, Michael should have a notebook in his hand. And all of a sudden, he did. My late grandmother, who grew up in Southie, South Boston, has a. Uh, she's played by a character in the movie, and for a, for a while, the script kept calling her Gran. We never called her Gran. We called her, like most people in Southie, Nana. And finally, I said she just wasn't Gran. She was Nana. They changed the script, so they cared about that kind of detail. That's good. The other two great things about this are female journalist who doesn't sleep with a source. Love that. And Southie, no mobsters. Nope. Thank God. Nope. Hey, look. No guns, yeah. no sex, yeah. no car chase, yeah. no explosions. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, don't worry. Ruffalo and Keaton have got you covered on the next ones. And Leif Shriver, he played Sabretooth in a movie too. Everyone's a superhero. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much. Thank that you. was excellent. We put out a call. Hey, do you have a website that was designed by Squarespace? And uh, some of our listeners said, yeah. And some of them even said, in fact, I got 10% off because I signed up via the gist. So one is an indie press called, I think it's, Achiote, but it could be Achiote, A-C-H-I-O-T-E. It's lovely. It's just a lovely website. You go to it. There are five books on the front page. You click on any of the books. You get to see that, yeah, you are being offered the 2008 Ba'atz Prize for Indigenous Literature in Guatemala. It's lovely. They have the archives of Achiote or possibly Achiote Press, an about contact sheet. It's just really easy to navigate. It looks totally professional. It's, I've been to uh, publishers' websites that have maybe, I'm going to guess, spent a little more on their website and they don't look as good and they don't do as much. Squarespace is the way to achieve this. Professional design regardless of your skill level. No coding is required. Intuitive, easy-to-use tools. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Here's how to do it. To start your free trial today, go to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now the spiel, jihad or faux jihad. So a few weeks ago, the police commissioners and school officials in both New York and L.A. received threats. In L.A., they took these threats seriously. They closed the school down. In fact, the next day, in that day's Republican debate, Chris Christie talked about the horror 
of closing the schools down. Just like he talked about the horror of San Bernardino in last night's debate of neighbors knowing that an attack was imminent and not saying anything due to political correctness. Well, he was wrong last night and it was wrong a month ago because it was a hoax. And I guess Christie's point was, well, how could you possibly figure out it was a hoax? Police Commissioner Bill Bratton explained why it was a hoax and a lot of it had to do with spelling. So I put this together where I, I embodied the police commissioner, which, is, which I'm able to do. I do three accents. One's just a New York accent. I inflected it with a little of uh, Bratton's Bostonian. And I basically, as, as a comedy bit, I wrote on one side of the page lots of terms that an Islamist might say. And on the other side of the page, I wrote a lot of terms that a grammarian would say. And from there, comedy was born. I hope you enjoy. New York schools haven't had a snow day, but L.A. schools had a terror day. L.A. looked at the email that the New York schools also got and said, that's scary. New York looked at the same email and said, yeah, nice try, moron. Here, NYPD Commissioner Benjamin Bratton explains the kind of errors that were in the threatening email that made it seem less than credible. The language in the email would lead us to believe that uh, this is not a jihadist initiative. For example, that uh, Allah was not spelled with a capital A. That would be incredible to think that any jihadist would uh, not spell Allah with a capital A. Bratton went on to add, Furthermore, jihad is not spelled with a G. Furthermore, after jihad, a real terrorist would not threaten jihad 2 with a vengeance or jihad 3, jihada. Al-Qaeda and Zarqawi, Those were both spelled with a U after the Q, which we thought was more the habit of a Westerner. Iraq was spelled with a U after the Q in Iraq also, which is more the habit of a stupid Midwesterner. Words like Shia, Bayah, which means oath of fealty, and Muminin, which means the faithful, had inconsistent apostrophes. And sometimes the apostrophes were actually the winky eye emoji, but I guess computers do that sometimes. In expressing the idea for the return of the caliphate, we feel that would not normally be expressed by a map outline of the state of California, a minus sign, the words Onya, and a plus sign, and the number eight. Islamic jihadists, from our experience, do not dabble in rebus puzzles. Similarly, the word infidel would not be illustrated by an in sign plus a fiddle. Other Arabic words in the threat, including Salafi and Tawheed, were blue and contained hyperlinks, indicating they weren't actually known by the threat authors, but were cut and pasted from a Wikipedia article. Then we assessed specific threats to turn different towns and municipalities in the state of New York into Sunni strongholds. They said we would bring about a Sunni Binghamton, a Sunni Albany, a Sunni Stony Brook. We found these two closely correlated to the presence of Sunni schools, State University of New York schools. Therefore, we deeply discounted that threat based on the laziness thereof. I gotta say, I love being a New Yorker on days like today. 
And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Andrea Salenzi, who's not doing a counter event for the Wounded Warriors, but for the Wrestling Warblers, the members of the World Wrestling Federation who put together an album where they sang Land of a Thousand Dances. Do you remember that from the 80s? Junkyard Dog had a good part. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's involved in raising funds for the Wide Web. It's not the World Wide Web. It doesn't go that far. It's more of an artisanal thing. It never got off the ground. That's his cause. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for the Panoply Network. And his pet cause, it's wasted wrapping paper. It just doesn't like the extra stuff that you got to fold under to make it look good. He wants to eliminate your wrapping paper footprint. He's raising money for wasted wrapping paper. The gist, perhaps you've seen my bracelet, www, what would Willy Wonka rot? I like to put myself in the mind of Willy Wonka and try to find a way to amaze and delight people as I'm actually killing small children due to imperfections or tiny bits of impulsivity. I love that guy. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>